like um, it's really important in order to understand our founder, Joseph Smith, and our ordinance, our ritual. I think it's really important to understand Freemasonry. I, after studying Freemasonry, I am a, a, a Latter-day Saint with the Temple Recommend, and I uh, understand the rituals that I've been through in a way that are just not possible without understanding Freemasonry. And um, I think that people have been afraid to look into this, that it might uh, weaken their faith. For me, it has strengthened um, my understanding of the symbolism. And I feel like that's one of the reasons why it was used in Mormon temple ritual, that the symbolism of Freemasonry is beautiful. It's amazing. And it can really help us understand what it means to go through um, the Latter-day Saint temple. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall. And uh, today we're talking about, uh, well, Joseph Smith. We're talking about the Restoration. We're talking about Freemasonry. And it's all sort of couched in the subject of this book, Method Infinite Freemasonry and the Mormon Restoration. First of all, you can find a link to purchase that book in the show notes of this episode. Uh, It's authored by Cheryl L. Bruno, Joe Stweve Zick, the the third and Nicholas S. Latursky. We've got Dr. Nick and we've got Cheryl here. Uh, I'm not sure who Joe is, but you know what? We don't need him. Let's move on without him, you guys. And, and you both went, ooh, maybe we would like to have him. How, who, who is Joe? We would Joe? love to have him. Joe is in an assisted living facility. He's in a um, skilled nursing facility right now. He um, had several strokes a oh, few geez. years back. And so is um, not able to join us, but I know he would love to be here if he could. So it's a curious thing when you have three people that kind of come together to author a book. Uh, before we started recording, I was talking to Dr. Nick and he's, you know, in the state of Oregon, yours in the state of California. And regardless of which state in the United States that um, that uh, Joe is in, I mean, you guys are in very different situations, very different sort of professions and and locations. How did it come together that the three of you we're going to do this book? Well, to begin with, I was living in Nauvoo, Illinois, actually, when this project started in 2002. And I became the first uh, Latter-day Saint to be admitted into a Masonic Lodge since the 1840s exodus. And I, I was an active member of the LDS Church at that time. And as I went through the initiatory ceremonies of Freemasonry, Um, As somebody who'd spent a great deal of time studying church history and the teachings of Joseph Smith, I just kept hearing him pinging Hmm. throughout those rituals. And so that created a real curiosity for me. Uh, To be honest, you know, I sort of naively started out with this question of, well, gosh, maybe Freemasonry was a prophecy of Joseph Smith all along, Hmm. Uh, which is not true, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that, that was sort of my initial question that got me started. But I went on to spend the next several years uh, doing research from original records. Since I was in the Nauvoo area, area, I had access to a lot of original Masonic records in that area. Um, I also traveled down to Arkansas and was able to access you know, original lodge records uh, because, you know, frankly, I knew the right ways to introduce myself. Hmm. Uh, and that, that, that seems like secret words or handshakes and that kind of stuff. And then people would allow you to do it. Yes. Yeah. Wow. There's a great deal of goodwill uh, among Masonic brethren. Yeah. You know, when they know who, when they know you are one of them, Mm -hmm. that opens doors for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I I spent, you know, several years doing this research. I had written about a hundred manuscript pages and then I had sort of a major uh, shift in my life. Uh, When I I came out of the closet, um, I did resign my membership in the LDS church and went on to start rebuilding my life. And, uh, you know, all of that going on sort of left the project stalled. Yeah. And so I handed off all my research to Joe Steve Swick, and Cheryl should probably pick it up from there. Okay, so Joe, um, first of all, I have to say it was an amazing collection that Nick was able to amass. Um, Just incredible amounts of knowledge, and um, everyone was excited about this book and wanted to get it out there. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, it had a lot of impetus. 
Um, Joe had um, a large collection of books in his own right that he had collected. And um, so with all of this, with all this material, he was kind of overwhelmed a little bit. And so he brought me into the project to first to organize his material. And so um, I began to organize the material and just since I'm a writer, I'm a researcher and a writer as well, but mostly a writer, I just started writing <laughs> because I just felt that it was ready to write. And um, so I just not, I didn't do much organizing ever. It's still in a big mess, but, <laughs> but um, I was able to do a lot of writing and um, Joe um, would talk and talk and talk. He was a, a talker and a thinker. So we would go out to eat and we'd just talk and talk and talk and I'd have my computer and I would take notes and I wouldn't need anything. I would just write and write and write. So we ended up with about 900 pages of, wow. um, in the manuscript. And um, then we submitted it to our publisher, which is Coford Books. And um, they said, no, 900 pages is a bit too much. So <laughs> then we had to take another year to cut. And um, that was about the time that Joe um, had a stroke and um, was incapacitated. And so um, it, it fell upon me to kind of finish the book and get it to the finish line. And so with the great help of Holly Welker, who is one of our editors, and Lloyd Erickson, who's over at Coford Books, we cut it down. Um, we uh, we crafted it so that it could be the best that it could. And then COVID came along and put some more roadblocks in front of us and took two more years after that to get it uh, finally out. But uh, we, the three of us, I think all three of us put in a great deal of effort and um, into this project. And we always, Nick and I say, this book could not have come to pass without the work of all three of us. Uh, each of us put a lot of it into it. Is it something that you had studied at all, Cheryl, before you kind of get roped in to be a researcher and writer on the project? Or were, was it just because of your merits as a researcher and a writer that that he was like, yeah, come on in and, and this is what we're doing and get on board. Here we go. Yes, I had written quite a bit on um, esotericism, 19th century, Freem or 19th century Mormonism is my specialty. So I knew quite a bit about um, Nauvoo and um, and Missouri and the early Mormons. And so um, I fit right into the project. Um, I had studied Freemasonry, but magic in Mormonism and the early uh, esoteric aspects of, of the religion. So I think that's that's why he chose me to, to come into the project then. By the way, I just feel like I need to say this is that Joe and I ended up getting married. So oh. we were we we could work quite closely um, for many years on that because we um, during most of the project, we were husband and wife. I mean, that is commitment to a project. Cheryl. <laughs> I, really, I, I appreciate you would do that. Uh, so I, I want to clarify one thing that you said, uh, Dr. Nick, just to make sure, because I, I'm pretty sure that I uh, know this. You were the first person that was a member, an active member of the church to be a part of the Masonic Lodge in Nauvoo because there had been Masonic Lodges here right. and elsewhere. Okay. Yeah, in, in Hancock County. Okay. And then uh, the other thing that I guess I'm, I'm curious about is this is essentially your life's work. And then because you have this, this, I don't know how to say, it, it's not life altering. You kind of, you just have this thing where you go, Hey, this is, this is who I am. And I'm going to pick up this and go this way. Yet you're sitting here now two decades later and, and are still part of the project. So where does that bridge go from? No, thanks. Take this. I'm out to let's get this and, and, and share this to where you're involved in it again. Well, you know, when when it was just Joe involved, Joe and I had a lot of conversations about the evidence and about the material, and that continued uh, to a less, somewhat lesser degree after Cheryl became involved. But we still had you know conferences. Um, one thing I didn't know as much when I started this project about uh, citing your sources and and really making sure that everything was tracked well. So there were times that Cheryl was, you know, where did you find this? <laughs> we had those conversations. Um, but I, I, I stayed on a periphery, if you will. I wasn't completely gone, uh, but I was definitely, you know, kind of on the tangent. 
And then, uh, you know, Cheryl, frankly, you know, invited me to become involved again. And, and I really want to emphasize this is, this is overwhelmingly Cheryl's work getting this across the finish line. I'm glad that I was able to come back into the project and help with some editing and, and some work toward the end. Um, but yeah, I felt, I felt like it was really important to have Nick's um, name be on the book because he really was so involved um, in the beginning and um, so much a part of getting the research together that I really felt that his name needed to be on the book. And so I was glad that he was willing to, you know, have his name be part of it. Um, and I feel like he's come um, a little bit uh, different to a different place than he was when, um, when he handed the book off to Joe. And maybe he'll talk about that a little bit too. No, I think that's fair. Uh, you know, as at that early point when I did resign my membership in the LDS Church, uh, I was probably not as prepared uh, to to treat this, you know, from a um, from a scholarly viewpoint without a lot of passion, mm-hmm. uh, one way or another. And in the intervening years, you know, I've come to my peace uh, as I've continued my spiritual path, and really been able to come back into greater activity with the project from a place of admiration uh, to where instead of this being something that uh, was an opposing view, if you will, this is really a love letter. You know, for, for me, for, for my personal approach to this book, this is a love letter to the things I find beautiful in Freemasonry. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, in, yes, Freemasonry too, but in Mormonism, <laughs> uh, because it is the esoteric, the, the excitement, the exploration of that time that that moved the doctrine forward, that moved the followers of Joseph Smith, that, that is deeply attractive to me to this day. And there are still aspects of Mormonism that I carry into my spiritual worldview today. Mm-hmm. I want to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, let, let's get right into it. There are, there are crossroads. There are things to be discussed. Um, Cheryl has prepared a few of them that you can find in the show notes for this episode that we'll kind of queue up and then be able to talk through. We'll come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. BestDJinUtah.com is a website that you need to go to if you would like to party with me. Now, just because it says Utah as part of the URL does not mean that it has to be in the state of Utah. I've traveled to such illustrious places as Wyoming, Nevada, Texas, Washington, and others, Idaho as well. If uh, if you're having an event and you think, you know what, I would love the energy, the charisma that is Richie uh, to be able to bless the event. I don't know why I said bless. You can hit me up, bestdjinutah.com. Maybe you, you yourself are getting married or has been the case multiple times this year. You are the apparent not a parent, just the parent, uh, or one of the parents, because there's multiple parents. I'm getting distracted. You are one of the parents of the bride or groom, and you think, Richie would be great to be at this event. You can hit me up, bestdjinutah.com. Be sure that you mentioned uh, that you hear it on the cultural hall. I may, in fact, even get you a little bit of a discount. Who knows? We'll see how I feel that day. It's bestdjinutah.com. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, do not forget that you can become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall by going to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. You can donate anywhere from $5, 10 or $25 a month to be able to help keep the lights on. You get to be able to see the videos that no one else gets to see unless you're a Patreon saint. I'll do that, patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. So I think the thing that I hear the most is that Mormonism, or more specifically, the temple ritual in the, in the Mormon, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is just Freemasonry with a couple of twists, and that's where Joseph Smith got it. Maybe we start there to onboard this conversation. Well, 
I keep saying this over and over. I feel like um, people like to jump right into masonry in the temple, the Mormon temple, and you just cannot understand what Joseph Smith was doing with Freemasonry in the Nauvoo temple, unless you start way back um, a lot earlier. Um, and that's why people just don't get it. And it's a scary thing. And they want to just forget about it. And, um, you know, they just don't understand why Freemasonry is there. So um, we hope that our book will start way back from the beginning and bring people along and help them to see what exactly Joseph Smith was doing. And I think it's working because people are telling me that they're seeing this in a way that they've never seen it before. So give me a little snippet. Obviously, we're encouraging people to read the book, but give me an idea of of what an element or one a aspect that would be that that would be important that I would know so that it gives me sort of the roots with Freemasonry that doesn't just jump to plagiarism of the temple. Right, right. Well, even if if you look back even before Joseph Smith's birth, and, and, okay. and I have said frequently that Joseph Smith was influenced by Freemasonry from the cradle to the grave. Even before his birth, Joseph had members of the family uh, who were Freemasons. But his father in particular, Joseph Smith Sr., was fascinated with Masonic ritual and, and Masonic legend. In Randolph, Vermont, where the family lived uh, for a time, there was actually a newspaper in the town that printed stories about Masonic legend and poetry and stories. So he even had he not even um, without his own efforts, it was, you know, in the culture, in, in his face. But the fact is, Joseph Sr. was fascinated with that. He had dreams uh, that that actually have parallels in Freemasonry. One in particular where, uh, you know, Freemasonry has a legend of the lost word. And, jo and Joseph Sr. has a dream in which he is told there's this one thing lacking. And, you know, in, in the dream, he, he asks if he can get a piece of paper to write down this one thing. And the angel speaking to him says yes. And, he, and in his rush to get the pencil and, and paper, he wakes himself up. Hmm. Uh, so these things are happening. Joseph Sr. also gets involved in treasure digging in Vermont. And this, too, is tied in with, with Masonic legend. Because there is a legend in Freemasonry that the lost word itself was engraved on a triangular plate of gold. And this, this relic, if you will, you know, certainly originated in, in what we call the Holy Land, but there, I, there were ideas already in the culture that, you know, people from the Holy Land had come to this continent. Uh, even the seal of Dartmouth, Dartmouth uh, reflects this legend. And so people were digging into the burial mounds of Native Americans and finding treasures. And that's part of where this treasure digging uh, tradition comes from in that area. Joseph Smith Sr. tried to join the lodge there at Randolph, a Federal, Federal Lodge 15, and was actually blackballed. He was not allowed to join the lodge. And there are How some. Come? Well, we don't know for sure because when somebody votes against a potential member, they don't give a reason. But there are a few reasons we cover in the book uh, that are possible, uh, one of which is possibly use of alcohol that hmm. uh, he had some struggles with early on. Um, another is the fact that he was so fascinated with the legends. And Federal Lodge was somewhat cosmopolitan uh, for that area. I mean, they had a Supreme Court justice come out of that lodge. Hmm. And so in some ways, Joseph Sr.'s attachment to those legends was already becoming an anachronism. And, and would be somewhat of an embarrassment to some of the other Masons in the area. As, as you know, Joseph and Lucy had children, uh, you see, for example, Hiram come along. Well, Hiram is born within the first couple of years of the establishment of the Grand Lodge of Vermont. And we actually went into the records from that time and could see how people in the area began naming their sons Hiram after Hiram Biff, a central figure in Masonic legend, right when the Grand Lodge was organized. Hmm. And so Hiram Smith is part of that same uh, curve there, in that same trend. So all these legends are coming together in the family and the family's understanding, even before Joseph is born. And, and so that begins to form who he is. 
there's also an understanding among Masons at the time that the time will come when pure Christianity and pure Freemasonry will both be restored and they will become hand in hand. And, and that's really an important aspect of, of what we've shown in the book. Do you have anything to add to that, Cheryl? Yes. So um, I think that we often hear as Mormons, we hear that Joseph Smith was restoring true Christianity. So he felt that it had gone into an apostate state and that he needed to restore it and bring it back to its pure form. But we don't realize that he felt the same about masonry as well. He felt that masonry had become corrupt over the years and that he saw himself and his father saw him as well as a Masonic restorer. It had been prophesied that there would be a, a Masonic restore to restore pure masonry to the earth. And that's what Joseph Smith thought he was doing. So I think this is important. This is important to know as we see um, masonry in the Book of Mormon, as we see masonry in other places, um, as he goes along, he is beginning to restore what he sees as pure masonry. And you mentioned masonry in the Book of Mormon, and I think a lot of people's ears sort of perk up and go, hang on, Cheryl, where is there Freemasonry in the Book of Mormon? Probably multiple times, but I would be curious to know one that you could go, yeah, this is clearly a parallel to Freemasonry. They talk about secret combinations. They talk about aprons. They talk about um, cord drawing, um, Satan drawing people with a cord, and they have lots of um, little pieces that are very familiar to Freemasons. The problem today is we do not understand Freemasonry as they did in the 19th century. Back then it was just ubiquitous throughout the culture. And so whenever um, there was something brought up, like say I say kryptonite, Mm-hmm. You I think would of automatically, Superman. yes, you automatically you know that's Superman because it's in your culture. Um, but that's not a word that anyone would know if they didn't know who Superman was. But um, and so in Freemasonry, a lot of times there are things that um, that uh, you could word wording certain wordings that you say that Masons are going to pick up on immediately. Mm. Um, and back then when you know, eight out of 10 men were Freemasons. That was very familiar. Today, we don't see that as much. So when we read the Book of Mormon, we don't always see the masonry in it, but um, it's certainly there. Um, The question I think um, many people have is whether Joseph Smith was an anti-Mason when he wrote the Book of Mormon, when the Book of Mormon came forth, because um, he a lot of times talks about these secret combinations and um, Dan Vogel, in particular, believes that he was um, he was very anti-Masonic. However, he wasn't anti-Masonic. Um, in the Book of Mormon, we have things that seem like you're talking about uh, corrupt Masons, but there are also the pure form of Masonry, such as Nephites building a Solomonic temple. This mm-hmm. is very Masonic as well, and it's... Um, it's very favorable to masonry. So it's clear when you read the Book of Mormon that there are um, two different kinds of, of masons there. You have the, the pure masonry and you have the corrupt masonry. So um, I think Joseph Smith was very, um, throughout his life, he was very drawn to masonry. And you can see that in the Book of Mormon and in other aspects of his life. Yeah. So and this, is, this, oh, this, is not, this is not something that you know was was only on the part of Joseph either. This idea of a pure masonry and a spurious or unauthorized masonry was in the literature of the time. That's part of the reason there was this talk of a restoration of pure masonry. And so, you know, if you look at writers such as George Oliver, for example, the idea is that all of the biblical patriarchs were grand masters of Freemasonry in their day. So the idea is that, that this pure religion carried forth both factors and then was corrupted and they were to be brought together again. So do people within uh, Freemasonry consider Joseph Smith to be the restorer or has, is that someone else that has come or are they still waiting um, for he to restore the, you know, the true Masonry? Um Freemasonry provides a substitute word for the master's word, and it is really considered the the work of an individual mason uh, to seek that. Uh, But even then, that's metaphorical. 
mm -hmm. Freemasonry, as opposed to literal. These legends and these ideas were taken uh, in the 19th century often as literal when they were, in fact, meant to be metaphorical. Yes, and so just as uh, Mormonism has changed a lot since the 19th century, masonry has changed quite a bit, too. I don't think you would see in modern masonry people waiting around for a Masonic no. restorer. Um, so that's another problem when people compare Mormonism and masonry. Um, oftentimes they're comparing the, the modern day Mormonism with modern day masonry, and you can't do that. And there are very few people on this earth today that know um, 19th century masonry and 19th century Mormonism. Um, we can name them probably on the fingers of one hand. Um, uh, people that I would trust to be able to compare those two knowing anything about it. So you really have to dive into it very deeply. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other things that you sent um, before that I just want to get right into, and I'll use your words to sort of cue it up. Um, you said, by the time that the Kirtland Temple was built, several Mormon insiders were already well acquainted with the signs, symbols, and inner workings of Freemasonry. They participated in and were impacted by Masonic motifs in the rituals and ordinances performed within the lodges, in the architecture and use of ritual space, and in the historical backdrop of the temple's establishment. Even those who were neither Freemasons nor involved in the inner circle of men who had received washings and anointings had sufficient cultural awareness of the fraternity so that they could recognize Masonic influence as the temple took shape. And then you ask the question, how were LDS temples more closely aligned with Masonic temples than biblical models? And what Masonic influence was present in the development of early temple ritual before Nauvoo? So I, so I guess I would ask you your own question back to you. How were the LDS temples more closely aligned with Masonic temples than biblical models? And what Masonic influence was present in the development um, of those early temple rituals before the time of Nauvoo? And then how did they switch or change as it got to Nauvoo? Yes, so um, we we know that Mormon temples are sort of um, modeled after the Solomonic, the biblical temples, mm -hmm. um, or at least they say they are. And same with masonry. Masons um, build their temples to resemble the Solomonic temple. However, when you go back in the Bible and you look at dimensions or you look at um, ordinances that happened in the biblical temples, these are very different than what happened in, um, in Mormon temples and Masonic temples. We don't do ritual sacrifice in either one of them. So the, the kind of ritual that happens in Masonic temples is, or in Mas the Masonic hall, Masonic ritual is what happens in Mormon ritual. Um, and we can compare those two quite favorably. And then when we go back and look at Solomon's temple, which they're both, both supposed to be um, modeled around, it's, it's different than both of those. So that's just very interesting to me that, um, that we have similarities in the, in the two, the Masonic and the Mormon temples that we don't see in, in biblical temples. Yeah. And, this, and this architectural, um, influence in particular continues uh, you know our book our book really sort of ends you know with the Nauvoo era for the most part but even if you look later um, I, I found a couple engravings of the central Masonic Hall in London you know for, for the Grand Lodge of England and, and their great hall and it's you know beautiful engravings if you look at them if I were to show them to you Richard it is the interior celestial room of the Salt Lake Temple. Hmm. I mean, it is clear uh, architectural uh, influence from a time when we had, of course, apostles and such doing their missions in England. So there is some very conscious influence of the architecture itself. You know, it, it, with people that I, I feel like I've had the conversation with and have said, oh, well, of course it's going to be similar because it all draws back to, you know, the Solomonic Temple. 
Uh, and then the other people that feel like, oh, it, it's plagiarism just of this Almanac Temple. It's interesting to me that it's the same thing and and people just take the interpretation however they want it to sort of fit how, however they feel about it. Like it's okay because it comes from the Bible or it's complete plagiarism because it comes <laughs> from the Bible and it wouldn't be yeah. this thing and how could you possibly believe it? That that to me is a, is a fascinating sort of chasm of thought about the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you have to be really careful when you, um, many people want to go back to ancient influences and um, make their points, like you said, whether they be um, pro or con, um, they make their point by looking at ancient influences. And I think that that's, uh, you want to look at um, what was close to Joseph Smith and see what, um, you know, the, the similarities were there, because as you go further back, in time, the similarities get um, less um, less important, or um, and so you can't really say that they both are harking back to ancient influences. That's very difficult for me to see. Yeah, you know, one one of the I can't remember who it was now. I'm, I'm sorry, but you know, one of the individuals that interviewed Cheryl and I uh, recently made a really good point about this whole plagiarism idea, and you know, nobody looks at Mormonism and says, well, Joseph Smith plagiarized Christianity. <laughs> okay. Sure. There's obvious influences, mm-hmm. but there is, you know, but there is this cultural fear around Masonic influence. Uh, that, that's really unfortunate because the, the reality is, you know, the early saints were living and proselyting even in areas of heavy Masonic influence. You know, Hiram, Ohio was named Hiram for a reason. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, th- this this influence was real. It does not take away from. And, th- and that's one of the things that, you know, some people expect our book to be somehow negative about the LDS church uh, just because they're afraid of the topic. Mm-hmm. The reality is what we've presented is a story. And the lens you bring to it will uh, will impact how you read that story and how you understand it. Mm-hmm. There is nothing in this book to destroy faith, nor is there anything in this book that's going to prove Mormonism to be true. But it's a fascinating story. Do, do you think that Joseph Smith, and this is speculation, so I know you'll love this kind of stuff, but do you think that um, those early members of the church align themselves so much with Freemasonry because it was it, it was in the areas and in the time where they were, or was it a safety measure because of the persecution that they were receiving from other uh, individuals and other groups? I'm not sure quite what you mean by a safety okay. measure. I, so so to me, and and maybe I just misunderstand it, but like um like Dr. Nick was saying at the at the very beginning that he was able to get sort of special privilege because he can align himself with with other people and say, "Hey, I'm part of the same club as you are." Wink, wink, nod, nod. Mm-hmm. Um, were those early members of the church able to align themselves with this greater group of people who were Freemasons and be able to say, "Yeah, both hey, of us I- are like." <laughs> Both of us are champing at the bit to answer that one. Um, because really, um, Joseph Smith was not um, using masonry because he wanted to make friends or gain political influence with these people. And um, this becomes very clear as you read our book. The things that um, Joseph Smith did were, you once he became a Freemason, were uh, very alienating to some of the, the Masons and were not um, um, a way to make friends and to gain influence. Um, so he was not doing it for that purpose at all. And there are many, including the church's um, latest um, gospel topics essay has that in it, um, that he may have been doing, um, joining the lodge so that he could um, have political allies or make friends. And this is we, not what we see in our research. That, that, that claim actually accuses Joseph of fraud. Because a free a candidate for initiation into Freemasonry has to affirm, among other things, that they are not doing this for gain. Hmm. And when I talk about you know that the proselyting and such in places like Hiram, Ohio, in that time, Freemasonry was under condemnation. Uh, William Morgan had been kidnapped uh, in, in 1820s and, you know, in all likelihood, murdered. 
for writing an expose of Masonic ritual. And that became a nationwide scandal. And so participation in Freemasonry tanked around the country. So no, the, the idea that, that they were courting favor or, or trying to get advantage in that was simply not the case. By the time they're in Nauvoo, Freemasonry is beginning to recover from that. But even then, the motivation was not about political alliances and, and such. It was about Joseph's own sense of mission. Do you think any of it would have been the kind of the, you know, how sons always want to do what their fathers, you know, I always want you to be a dentist. I always want you. And with the, with Joseph seniors sort of um, fixation and fascination with uh, the Masonic order, do you, is it possible? And again, I know folks like yourself hate these kind of speculative things, but I wonder if there's any sort of evidence that would bear some of that out where it's just like, this mattered a whole lot to my dad. We talked about this a bunch growing up and, and kind of took those steps in, in some part because that was an expectation or, you know, to, to, to try and prove that to his dad. I would speculate that, yes, perhaps that is, um, an influence. Um, also his brother Hiram or his brother Alvin, his older brother Alvin, who died, I think was um, someone who the family had pinned their hopes on. And um, when, after he passed away, they kind of turned to Joseph. And so I feel, I feel like he may have felt some um, maybe obligation or um, some kind of feeling that he needed to um, fulfill the role that, that was expected of Alvin. Um, so I would say that in my mind, um, that that's a pretty good um, estimation of, of what he was all about. I want to take another break real quick. We'll take a, a quick break, come back in the third block. Uh, there are a few questions that we ask everyone who steps into the culture hall. I'll ask those of you. Plus, I got a couple other follow-ups to some of the other things we've talked about. We'll come back and do that in just a minute. Hey, this is Dan, the Laptop Man from PC Laptops in Salt Lake City. Ho, 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 Santa Claus is here! Have you been a really good girl or boy this year? Hold on to your elf! It's the Ultra Mega El Grande Fluffy Holiday Sale at PC Laptops on the best desktop and laptop computers on the planet. This is it! We have the brand new PC Laptops S1 desktop computer with a lifetime parts and labor warranty from $29 a month. You can also save up to 50% off our original prices on Open box, scratch and dents, and demo models. That's right, up to 50% off. Plus, they all come with a lifetime service guarantee. Holy mackerel! To make it impossible to resist, we're doing 12 months special financing on any PC laptops, desktop, or laptop computer. Have I lost my mind? Call us at 1 596 7283 for details or check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com, where we love you. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can always email us contact at theculturalhall.com. That is our email. It is always open. You get that itch to send me an email in the middle of the night as you're thinking about Freemasonry and Joseph Smith at two in the morning. Please don't call me, but you certainly can email me contact at theculturalhall.com and say, that was phenomenal. I love Dr. Nick and Cheryl. You should have them on again. Uh, if you have something negative to say, just keep it to yourself. I don't need to hear it. Um, so, so I think maybe Maybe the connection where people try and draw this line, uh, and and you are welcome uh, because I I can open a mouth and insert a foot at any time. Um, when Joseph was martyred, the story that I remember is he jumped from the window and exclaimed something that had to do with the Masonic order. And I think for people who haven't written a great book called, uh, you know, Method Infinite. Uh, the Freemasonry and the Mormon restoration, you know, people that don't know that much about it, they just go, well, yeah, he was trying to call out to his buddies. Hey, I don't want to die and, you know, help unite. Let's rally this thing. So, so why would that be that he would do that? You know, what, what, what would the connection be to, to that, that part of that experience, if not to call out sort of an SOS. Well, what Joseph was doing was indeed the grand hailing sign of distress of a master Mason. Uh, and one thing that people don't realize is there are words and there are actions, you know, physical actions uh, attached to that uh, signal. When a Mason is instructed, they are told that if you see those, those motions or 
hear those words, you are expected to respond. So it's not about, you know, whether he completed every aspect of that. Mm -hmm. Joseph got as far as saying, oh, Lord, my God, and was prevented from continuing uh, because he was shot and such. Uh, Those who were familiar knew that's what he was doing. You know, John Taylor writes an editorial in the Times and Seasons that castigates the Masons who were present in the mob and specifically says that Joseph was giving a sign of distress that should have moved mountains Hmm. and that they did not respond. In our book, we go further into the Masonic connection with Joseph's death than anybody has uh, because of additional evidence that we've found. Uh, And we've, we've long known, of course, that there were Masons in the mob, but that's usually been dismissed as just a peripheral issue. The fact is, Freemas- uh, Freemasons of the time were involved in the jo- in the death of Joseph and Hiram in a very tangible, significant way that we detail. In in a very uh, general and broad question that may even come across as offensive, but I guarantee you that it's not. That your regular, <laughs> do you love that setup? What's next? Here we go. <laughs> Um, this, this is an intense, a, you know, a, a two decades long research from when you first started out with this, Dr. Nick and Cheryl, you of course come in and we hear the dedication of, of, of Joe and, and the, you know, the culmination of his life's work as well. And then I wonder, is it a, a, a deep fascination? Is it as I, as I, you know, walk this earth trying to make my way back to, you know, heavenly parents that I believe that this life is the time and the trial to do so. And every day sort of faced with, you know, the different choices that I make, how, how, how does what is contained in this help me along that walk? Or is it just like something that if you are deeply fascinated and you can have the greatest research that's ever been done on this particular topic, or maybe is it a little column A, a little column B? I feel like um, it's really important in order to understand um, our founder, Joseph Smith, and um, our ordinance, our ritual. Um, I think it's really important to understand Freemasonry. I just, um, I, after studying Freemasonry, I um, am a, a Latter-day Saint with the Temple Recommend, and I uh, understand the rituals that I've been through in a way that are just not possible without understanding Freemasonry. And um, I think that people have been afraid to look into this, that it might uh, weaken their faith. For me, it has strengthened um, my understanding of the symbolism. And I feel like that's one of the reasons why it was used in Mormon temple ritual, that the symbolism of Freemasonry is beautiful. It's amazing. And it can really help us understand what it means to go through um, the Latter-day Saint Temple. Yeah. I, I love as, that. As a former Latter-day Saint, you know, I have a little different uh, perspective on that, but one that would probably surprise a lot of people. Because, of course, the Articles of Faith say that we should pursue truth wherever it is to be found. And for me, this project, you know, even beyond my, my you know, spiritual tradition of choice, is still a fascinating revelation, if you will. Joseph, to me, Joseph was a ritual and religious genius and deserving of respect and admiration in that as it is. I would even go so far as to say a prophet, although I don't use that word with the ecclesiastical overtones that Latter-day Saints do. But the fact is, you know, this man accomplished amazing things and created a system that has been has benefited millions of people. And this book unfolds an aspect of what he did in that creation of that system. Now, as a believer, you'll see the hand of God in that. But even as a non-believer, I still see the divine. I still see something that made a difference in the world and and that is fascinating in itself. So to me, this whole, this research and this book enriched my spiritual path, even as a non-Latter-day Saint, to be able to see that bigger picture. 
Is there a, uh, do you feel like there needs to be a primer? Do I need to know certain things before I set out on the journey of this book? Or do you onboard those that are reading to be like, all right, here's kind of the basic stuff. And now we're going a little deeper and, and, and let's get it there. I feel it's very accessible that way um, because we do start out explaining um, what the reader needs to know about Freemasonry. Um, we try to stick to the masonry that Joseph Smith would have known and um, take the reader through that. And then we, um, we just start at the beginning of his life. And Joseph Smith didn't know it all right at the beginning. So um, I think that the reader goes along the same path that he did as he developed his ideas and as he developed these Masonic-like organizations, the Danites, um, the Navi Legion, the early, just the early organizations that he um, created and um, just the seeing how he brought Masonry into these and how he developed his thoughts. Um, so I think it's very accessible for the reader. You don't really need to know anything um, special um, to start out and read this book, but also um, I think people who also know quite a bit about Freemasonry have also expressed that they um, have learned quite a bit through this book. So um, it's been very well received that way. Is it fear that you think that has kept members of the church? I know that there are members of the church, active members of you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who participate in Masonic lodges all across the country, across the world, but you don't hear about it a whole lot. Is that just due to the popularity or unpopularity of Masonry, or is it is it just a culmination of a lot of people going, I'm not sure how that'll treat my faith, so I'm just going to kind of back away from it? There are still a lot of Latter-day Saints who think that um, Latter-day Saints are not allowed to become Masons. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a time when LDS leaders taught that you should not uh, participate in Freemasonry, just as there was a time the Grand Lodge of Utah prohibited Mormons from joining. Yeah, uh, Both of those factors have changed. You know, Spencer W. Kimball removed the prohibition from the church, and, and of course, the Grand Lodge of Utah finally rescinded, uh, you know, their, their limits. And if people want to hear more specifically about the all the different things with the Utah Lodge, we did an episode back in the first hundred, episode 66, where we had a couple of members from the Utah Lodge who talked all about some of the, the things that happened uh, once they settled the valley here and and Masons and everything like that. It is a fascinating episode yeah, to listen to. And conveniently to. lost records. <laughs> yeah. What what records? What are we? What records? I don't know. <laughs> and the fights and street fights and all of the things. I just it's almost the stuff that uh, fiction is made of only we know it's not it's yeah. you, know, it's a, you know Richard you were talking about this thing of you know trying to know both traditions and and you know what do you need to know going in and I think that's actually one of the important strengths of the book because up until now you've had Mormons who knew very little about Freemasonry trying to write on the topic and you've had Masons who know very little of Mormonism coming to the topic. This is the first time that authors deeply invested in both traditions have, have come forward to do this. You know, Joe and I both have extensive histories, more so Joe, uh, in, participation, in participation with Freemasonry. Cheryl, of course, has studied it extensively, and all three of us have been, for significant parts of our lives, active members of the LDS Church. So we're able to bring both of those perspectives together in a way that no writers have done before. And I have to say this again, because it's so important is um, that we are versed in the, the 19th century version of both of them, uh, because I know there are um, a few Latter-day Saint authors who know 19, uh, 21st century Mormonism, 21st century Masonry, they may even be Masons and they think, oh, my Masonic Lodge doesn't do it. Anything like the Temple Wall, yeah, because it's very different <laughs> in both traditions now than it, it was um, in Joseph Smith's day. So you really have to be um, you have to be versed in in the early the early Mormonism. The or, early or even Mormonism. or even since the time that Cheryl and or I were endowed, <laughs> you know, I mean that things yes. significantly. Yes, absolutely. Sure. sure. Or you just have to read the book Method Method Infinite. <laughs> 
Freemasonry and the Mormon Restoration. Uh, there's a link for it in the show notes. Uh, special thanks to the folks over at Coford Books for uh, getting us together so that we could be able to have this conversation. There's a question that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, and the best part is you get to interpret it however you would like, and whichever one of you uh, wants to go first after I ask the question is more than welcome to do so. Uh, the question is, is what is your favorite part of your faith? I hope Nick will feel the impulse to go first. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's difficult to narrow to one thing, but I what I will say, I, I mentioned earlier that there are aspects of Mormonism that I've carried forward uh, into my into my spiritual life today. And while my current my current beliefs are somewhat eclectic, but very influenced by Gnosticism, and one common aspect uh, between Mormonism and my spiritual world of today is the potential for human divinization. Hmm. Uh, you know, Mormonism rejects this idea of humans as garbage, as filth that that is so prevalent. In, in Christianity at large, and instead looks at our potential to, to literally become divine. And that is something that I continue to carry with me, you know, in, in my spiritual practices, which have, have ironically have more to do with Joseph's uh, pre-1830 practices than, than not. <laughs> um, you know, in my, in my practices, I believe that I am created by that I am created as a divine creator God in the image of the all. And so that to me, I, I think if I, if I have to choose one thing, that would be it. That, that point of potential and, and who we truly are. Yeah, beautifully said. All right, Cheryl. That was nice, Nick. Um, I, I would say the same, but um, I'll, I'll take it a different direction. Um, there's a song that used to go, um, you're not alone. Remember that song? Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of Mormonism that I love the most is not only that we have, you know, a divine being that is, is there for us, but we have this network of people, our friends, our special friends like Joseph Smith um, sealed and bound these people to him for eternity. And I feel that I have um, friends uh, on this earth and family members that are so meaningful and special to me that I want to know that um, we have a bond that is eternal, a bond that is there um, no matter what. Um, I love you no matter what, no, no matter what happens. You are my special people, my special friends. And I think Mormonism has that idea in it um, in a way that no other religion does. We'll have the, the notes from this episode available again in the show notes, uh, a way that you can purchase uh, the book. And uh, we appreciate Dr. Nick Latursky and also uh, Cheryl Bruno. Uh, and uh, a shout out again to Joe Stweeb, Steve Zwick III uh, for this book. Uh, and a special thanks to the folks over at Coford Books. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the cultural hall save me a seat it's sure to be neat on the back row we really gotta go on the cultural hall show